We acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Turrbal and Niagara people, and their elders past, present and emerging. Sovereignty was never ceded and flood media is recorded on stolen land. Um, okay, well, welcome to the first entirely remote episode of Bloodcast. Uh, this is an interesting episode. I think all of us have been meaning to do something about um, the COVID stuff, but we've all been super busy with real life um, tasks, including the Queensland local government elections, which were on last weekend, which we will go into. Um, but yeah, we decided it was time to produce a show um, on, yeah, broadly looking at the kind of COVID-19 crisis unfolding around the world at the moment, and particularly in our small corner of Southeast Queensland. Um, and then, yeah, looking at how that will affect our lives as people who campaign in electoral politics, um, and also maybe more broadly what it means for left and for progressive movements in general. Um, so I think uh, with me, uh, I'm Joe, by the way, and with me is um, uh, guest EP, Eva. <laughs> Hello. Uh, yep. Hi. And Max. Yeah, good day. And Amy. Hello. Hello. Thank you all for joining me remotely from your little quarantine burrows. <laughs> um, so yeah, there's been a lot already said and written about the political, social and economic impacts of COVID-19. Um, so I guess we don't want to cover too much of the same ground, um, but I guess there's some briefly some takes that you know, we'd like to get out there, some d discussion points of things that are weighing on our minds. Um, so I might just open it up to you guys to to talk about, you know, whatever you might um, particularly be thinking at this point in time. Does anyone have anything in particular? Uh, I guess for me, just the the pace at which things are changing so quickly. Mm. Um, like if someone had said to you uh, two months ago or uh, even two weeks ago that the LNP government was going to make childcare free, um, what would you have thought? And then yesterday that became a reality um, and things are just moving so quickly. It's hard to get a grip on um, like the rules that we're meant to follow, but hard to get a grip on the various responses that the federal and state governments are, are coming up with to deal with um, a crisis that's really the manifestation of decades of privatisation and um, neoliberal governments. Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's a weird thing as well uh, around that latter point, Amy, because uh, one other thing I think a lot of people, one of the things people are definitely struggling with is, you know, COVID-19 thing has really been in many ways treated as a natural disaster. Like the politics that have occurred afterwards and prior are clearly, clearly up for contestation and there's fierce debate around it. <clears throat> but the health crisis itself is seen as this sort of thing, this like um, this uh, sort of external shock to the system that's like revealed a whole bunch of uh, sort of like internal contradictions and uh, you know, like laid bare the effects of neoliberal capitalism, but not much has been done to describe why, like the severity of the lockdown in a lot of Western countries or the sort of like scrambling nature of the government's responses are in of itself a demonstration of what happens when you cut or at least fail to properly fund all of these social services. Uh, you know, we can go into a lot of examples, but even the Australian health healthcare system, which is held out as this like, 
um, amazing um, amazing sort of like standard bearer across the world for universal public health care actually leaves a lot to be desired in a lot of areas. Uh, and, you know, the whole thing around, for instance, flatten the curve is all about making sure that we keep pressure off our healthcare system. But that's because our healthcare system has a particular limit that we can't let it reach. Otherwise, we start having to make awful decisions about who does and doesn't receive uh, intensive care unit beds and things like that. And we know, for instance, that, you know, like Queensland and Australia has a really low rate of beds per population compared to lots of countries. We know that, uh, you know, uh, Australia used to have a public pharmaceutical company that with the capacity to mass produce vaccines and cheap pharmaceuticals. We know that Australia used to have an amazing manufacturing capacity that was uh, progressively offshored as a result of labour reforms in the 90s. Labour also privatised the public pharmaceutical public pharmaceutical company and that lack of manufacturing capacity has meant that we're desperately short of a whole bunch of crucial medical gear down to basic things like face masks and there's a deep irony and not irony but sort of funny in a morbid way that actually the location of the vast majority of the world's face mask manufacturing all occurs in Wuhan like literally Wuhan is where most of the medical face masks are made around the world um, and so you know we can go into more about the contestation about what the politics are going about what we'll be fighting for and what the fight is going on now and whether or not just because the state is being involved in the economy doesn't necessarily mean that that's socialism or what will come afterwards. But it's interesting also just to reflect that like the severity of the lockdown we're experiencing now is a, is a byproduct of um, decades of governments choosing corporate profits over public services. I think also it's very interesting like um, talking about the um, what you were mentioning before, Amy, the scale of, of how things have changed. Uh, and obviously one of the more striking things has been the government's sort of strange Keynesian lurch and the sudden um, th sudden um, implementation of things like doubling, doubling New Start um, and freezing rental evictions, which, you know, I think we all agree with. Um, and things which were, which were, would have been dismissed as impossible even, you know, probably a few weeks ago. Um, but it's interesting to me that uh, all of these things are being kind of handed down by the state and by a you know conservative government that um, you know is, is Scott Morrison now is outflanking the federal Greens to the left on universal childcare. So you know, world upside down. But it is interesting to me that yeah, these these things have all been kind of handed down as a um, as a way to you know, mostly as a way to try and keep the economy afloat to stave off um, the worst effects of a, of a recession. So there's actually been very little role um, for, you know, the left in struggling or achieving these things. Although, you know, I know the, the union movement is claiming things like the government's wage subsidy program as a win. Um, but I think we all know that that's, you know, mostly rhetoric that, um, you know, ordinary union members and workers didn't have much of a role in agitating for that. So it's kind of a strange kind of backwards situation here where the left is extremely weak, progressive movements as a whole, extremely weak. And although, you know, there have been great organisations like the Australian Unemployed Workers Union like pushing for um, a new start raise over many, many years, um, it took this crisis for it suddenly to, to happen. And yeah, it's... it's um, it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of turn of events. It's not how social change <laughs> usually happens. Um, although, you know, there's an argument that, that, you know, crises um, often bring about these kind of reversals. But um, yeah, that's just something that, that has, has um, struck me over the last few weeks or days even. 
Yeah, it it is interesting because uh, I think precisely because the left and uh, I hate to be honest, increasingly I hate that term, but perhaps it's for the lack of a better term because uh, I'm not entirely sure ever what the left is because uh, most of the left I find abhorrent. Um, but that's just by the by. Uh, uh, um, sorry, I'm just being distracted by whatever this message is. Um, I don't actually, th I think the, the, the really important thing to reflect, and a lot of good people have written on this, uh, or there's an interview with the head of the U uh, Secret uh, Secretary of the UWU or James Meadway in Navarra Media, uh, to name a few, have pointed out correctly that a lot of the Western government reforms aren't actually, if you think about it, uh, particularly progressive. I think in the first instance, if you consider Australia at the moment, while yes, it's true that New Start's been doubled and this JobKeeper program has been introduced, what's really important to think about is actually there's still the vast majority of the investment that the government has made has gone towards big business, uh, whether that be sort of like government subsidies and bailouts, uh, um, even down to, you know, like the money that's eventually going to go to the airline industry and things like that, to name a few, without the government claiming any equity in those things. Uh, and actually sort of what's going on at the moment is in some ways actually quite similar to the 2008-9 crisis where the government is actually having a big role in the economy. And it is true that they're providing a little bit of money to the unemployed and to workers. But that's because without, because actually there's this a really quite a serious a uh, fundamental crisis going on where, you know, people no longer are actually capable of performing wage labour. And so uh, at the very least, it's actually sort of like incumbent upon the, the government to maintain um, a large layer of people who uh, essentially act as for the, you know, the term is reserve army of labour, but essentially a large body of people who will be ready uh, to go back to work once the crisis subsides. Uh, and, you know, the head of the UWU, whose name escapes me at the moment, made a very good point that, well, actually what's happening is that there's going to be really aggressive unemployment. And, you know, the, the progressive thing to do right now, and I think if the labour movement was very powerful and the left is very powerful, would there be some sort of guaranteed basic income at the least at the minimum wage that didn't, pre didn't rely on what your partner's income was, didn't rely on any sort of situation, but actually it was just money that you got in your pocket regardless. And the advantage of that is that that gives uh, unemployed people a much, uh, or like people who've just lost their jobs, a much better bargaining position. But what's actually going to happen is after the end of this six months and the new start rate, like even if even if it is one and it is maintained at its current weight, it's still well, you know, it's still below the minimum wage. Um, what will happen is actually we'll just have a huge number of unemployed people uh, coming into a labour market, and we know when there's a high rate of unemployment that that has a huge downward pressure on wages. And it's clear, even in this early stage, that these conservative governments, while there is real childcare and things like that, what they're doing is prepping the ground for a recovery that recovery that relies on low wages. Um, and while there is government intervention in the economy, you'll see a progressive transfer of that uh, uh, of those assets back uh, to private corporations. You can see even with the intervention in private hospitals, explicit in the government's intervention has been that we will hand them back to private hospitals the moment the crisis ends. And so uh, I think the just you know the sort of like cautious celebration going on at the moment about a lot of these interventions needs to be treated with a grain of salt um, because it's not. You know, as Joe's correctly points out, it's nothing to do with pressure applied by progressive movements. We shouldn't be starry-eyed about that. But this is just sort of like uh, frantic and quite um, all-over-the-place response, but at its kernel is ensuring that the recovery that occurs post 
this crisis is one that ensures more and more money and power and wealth is put in the hands um, of big corporations and the wealthy. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Um, if you're on like lefty Twitter, there's a whole lot of variations of memes that are like, hope you're enjoying your, your free 30-day trial of socialism. Um, but it's important to remember that this is essentially, I've, I've seen some people describe this as crisis socialism um, that's just there to sort of plug the gaps, um, to stave off the worst of the crisis, but also to make sure that people can stay at home, um, which is sort of where we've let the crisis get to. Um, and I think what this reminds us is that um, people are going to be getting like higher welfare and childcare and some sort of wage support. And these are all new frontiers for us once the crisis is over for how we're going to defend those things and extend them further. There's a few big gaps in what the government has been offering. Um, one of the most notable for me is that the disability support pension hasn't been increased while other um, the other levels of, of welfare for the job seeker and um, the job keeper. Um, someone must have felt very clever coming up with those names, but why people on the disability support pension who now have, you know, skyrocketing costs just like the rest of us to get through the crisis aren't included in there as well. Um, and it's going to be our job in six months' time to say, actually, no, we need to keep free childcare and we need to keep these high rates of, of new start um, because you're right, they're going to want to roll back all of that um, as soon as they get a chance. Yeah, um, I just wanted to echo everything Amy said there about the DSB in particular and also just like I think the big uncertainty for me right now is really that question of, yeah, what is it going to look like in six months? What's going to stay? How can we like fight to make sure that stuff does stay. And I think a lot of people are going to be asking that same question. Um, like the crisis seems to be laying bare a lot of things about how society works. Uh, like for me, like I'm learning all these things about public health that I didn't know, like this whole just in time strategy that I think has been like discussed a fair bit already. But I think people are going to be asking questions like why, why are these decisions made the way that they are things that don't seem like common sense when the crisis actually hits. So, yeah. Yeah, and the other big thing that I think people really, it needs to dawn on people is that I think will hopefully be, play out in debate um, is that the state as, in, as, as a body, uh, like as it exists in capitalist society, is not, like its active, its increased active role in the economy does not equal socialism. Um, and what, Bears, begs the question then is what is socialism in this context uh, and you know like for instance if you know if there was a massive expansion of public manufacturing or indeed the um, <clears throat> the airline industry was brought into public hands the question then is you know the fundamental question then is around those things is just that that doesn't necessarily mean that that socialism what would become what we would really start to look for then is some sort of uh, is some sort of uh, democratic control of those institutions where workers are on boards or whether or not broader society gets a vote on how or some sort of say in how those institutions function. I think the other thing, and this, you know, usually I'm a bit of an optimist when it comes to these things, and we'll get to this more. For those wondering, no, I don't have a dry cough. I just got back from a run. 
Um, <laughs> just responding to Amy's comment in the group chat. Um, <clears throat> uh, is what constitutes we in terms of like how we're going to fight for this or what we're struggling for, etc. Uh, because the institutions or the uh, or how we would build power to make sure that those things happen uh, is for me almost more of a fundamental question than the explicit demands that we make. Because right now, again, similar to the lead up to 2008 and 9, the institutions that would constitute, uh, you know, that would constitute a progressive radical lefts uh, and its ability to impose power or um, manifest power in society and politics I just don't really exist. I mean, there's small bits. Uh, there's our, you know, active role in the Queensland Greens and, and that is growing and impressive and we'll go more into the successes of the council election later. But I think it's just also worth, like, A, people posting on Twitter is not that. Uh, and, uh, and you know, I think a lot of people are going to have to ask some tough questions about how we build that those powerful institutions as quickly as possible uh, and and how we, how we use and leverage that power, uh, secondly, uh, because, uh, like, we can make all the demands that we want over the next six months, um, but it's... Uh, not going to be of much use uh, if we're not able to compete with the forces that will be more organised and more well-resourced than us on the other side, pushing for it, this to go into a different direction. Um, does anybody else have any hot takes? Because um, my only, the only other thing I wanted to add before we move on to kind of our, our big campaign um, strategies is the um, increasing police state that we <laughs> appear to be living under here. Um, I think... Yeah, there's a lot to be said on this, so maybe we won't go into it too much, but um, a friend of the show, Deck, has just sent, before we started recording, just sent a, um, a, a news article about how high-tech drones could be launching across the Gold Coast um, for disinfecting public spaces and, quote-unquote, crowd control. So, in other words, you know, cops will be watching you to make sure you don't gather in um, groups of more than two or three or whatever the hell it is. Um, and I think, you know, that in itself... Um, the fact that I don't even know what, you know, what's the group size is, is quite a, a big part of this whole puzzle. Because um, I think you said before when we started, Amy, the rules are changing really, really quickly. Um, and I think a lot of the kind of cop-like behavior I've been seeing from just ordinary people, like people on community Facebook groups, Facebook groups and that kind of thing, um, can be put down to the fact that the government response has been so shitty and vague. And most people are trying to do their best, but it's very hard when the rules change every two days. Um, and so I think this kind of like um, very sort of suspicious atmosphere has set in. Um, and, and of course that's compounded by the, the actual the actual cops and the, and the forces of the state um, being extremely punitive. Um, and not only in ways that are sort of public health related, like just as an example, I um, think I told you guys all about this, but I uh, was driving down um, the kind of main road near where I live uh, yesterday morning and there were police out there checking speed limits, enforcing the school zone. Uh, it's, you know, it's pupil free, as we all know, but they're still out there trying to catch people. Um, and, you know, there's been other stories of like someone in Newcastle eating a kebab on a bench was fined, however many thousands of dollars it is. So things that really like uh, punitive rather than helpful. Um, I know it will shock us all to hear that the police uh, would behave that way, but I think, you know, that's kind of, that's where we're heading really. Um, well, that's how it seems to me. Yeah, I think this is a really important thing for us to be mindful of and to not just 
be like, okay, this is just some sort of crisis response. So we're going to, you know, we're going to let this one through. Just as everything was kicking off, like before Queensland went into lockdown, um, the Queensland government put out a press release to say that they were going to be fast-tracking police through their police academy. Um, purportedly as a, a public health measure, so you don't have lots of people in the police academy, but also tucked down the bottom was uh, saying um, to deal with issues as the crisis unfold. And at that point, we had no idea. We were like, what What could this possibly mean? Like, what are they expecting is going to happen? And just a few weeks later, um, we're seeing it before our very eyes. Um, we're seeing, you know, cops just rolling around like, the parks and yeah, all these stories from across Australia where people are getting fined um, for doing things where there could have just been a conversation rather than than the cops um, stepping in. Um, and you know, we know Australia has this like particularly dark history um, with policing, and it's something for us to be like very critical and mindful of as this all unfolds. Yeah, um, just on that with the fines, I actually just saw something today uh, from the Queensland government um, about some of the updated health measures and uh, the fines specifically. And this one said, uh, you're now only allowed to leave your home if absolutely necessary for the following permitted reasons. Failure to comply with these regulations can result in a fine of up to uh, $1,300 for individuals and um, $6,000 for corporations. So yeah, that seems totally fair, right? Like that six times bigger fine for a corporation's failure to comply. I don't know. That just seemed totally weird to me. Yeah, and this, what I really, it's you know, and it's this is comparing it to say countries uh, like Sweden's a good example um, where there hasn't been nearly as much of a lockdown, and you know, there's obviously going to be a big debate about whether or not that's a smart or clever decision. But I think what the cops are a symbol of is they're like for me the sort of like very authoritarian response uh is the product of two things one at a simple level they're stepping in for the lack of a uh, of a uh thriving uh functional social democratic or democratic socialist state because if that existed, we would have the productive capacity to distribute face masks and hand sanitizer for free. We'd have a much higher rate of ICU bed and hospital beds per population. We would have a much more more well-functioning welfare system that would make people far less anxious or concerned about having to stay at home. We would have far more thriving social connections embedded within society and civil society groups that would be capable of providing that social support just at the point when people are getting really anxious. And so instead of that, instead of that, you know, the sort of social democratic state that we should fucking have, uh, we have cops. Uh, And it's really interesting because cops, probably the two major institutions that stand in for the lack of that are cops and schools. Because cops essentially, you know, like whether it's domestic violence, whether it's homeless people and then being moved on, whether it's... Um, crime and poverty, produ- you know, crime produced as a result of social disadvantage and things like that, or the imposition of police violence on First Nations people. They stand in to enforce the uh, the pathologies or sort of like the sicknesses produced by capitalism. Uh, and the other way to f- is the other way to deal with them is to create 
a thriving democratic socialist state with you know well-funded universal public housing etc i could go on people understand where i'm going with that but instead there's cops and right now this is becoming even more apparent that uh you know you may you know you feel desperately lonely or scared or socially isolated or just confused by this like uh, haphazard government response but the way for the government to really finally cut through is hold a fine over people's heads and send out the cops and start getting all authoritarian the second thing i'd say is this is also the product of we talk about this a lot on on floodcast which is this like very disconnected uh and uh hollowed out political system now if there were large you know, civil society groups that had, that bore representation in politics, you know, a uh, much more functional and thriving union movement or whatever that might be in the future, then we could expect that actually politics would have some sort of bearing on society that wasn't just enforcement, that they could bring people along with them because the political representatives in parliament were actually representatives of the people, uh, organized in some way, but they're not. And so this alienated and disconnected political class freaks out and, and and has admits almost to the population that there's no way of actually bringing them along with them. And so the other way of doing this is imposing police violence. Uh, and we know, and it goes without saying, that by and large, this will be imposed on poor and vulnerable um, black and brown people. Uh, and schools is another interesting one because schools were also this thing that really kicked off because the government was clearly unwilling to close them because there was no alternative solutions or institutions that were capable of providing the social care that was needed at this time. Schools always are the backstop for the kids with poverty because the school lunches that they provide often are crucial, uh, you know, uh, and the social welfare that that provides in particular to poor and disadvantaged children in of itself, as any teacher will tell you, is a job uh, all by its own some, and the government actually knows this, um, but usually in, outside of crisis, it doesn't really care, but in crisis, it starts to realise that these contradictions are all going to come up, and if they shut schools, all these other fucking awful social ills will come to the fore. Uh, and so, you know, before Eva made the point that hopefully this is starting to demonstrate, Eva or Amy made the point that some demonstrate these things, uh, but for me, yeah, this really, uh, as you can probably tell, really infuriates me, uh, uh, and I just think that it's an error to celebrate this sort of authoritarian approach or demand it even, which is, you know, I've seen in, in some quarters, I just think it's a, a serious and terrible error. Yeah, the last thing I'll say on that, um, and I think then we need to move on to other things, is that, um, Eva, I think you made the point when we were talking about this in another context a little while ago, but that like, it's not only that the political class is disconnected, but also people are disconnected from each other. Like people are extremely alienated to the extent that when they see their neighbours having five people over to the house, their first response is to call the police. Like, um, yeah, like that's what people think is the only thing they can do in that scenario, which is like really yeah, totally. So even though you know, I <laughs> want to encourage everyone to stop literally calling cops on their on their neighbours for my, relatively minor infractions. Um, I do sympathise that you know we don't have functioning um, community bodies or like you know other um, social institutions by which we can relate to each other and foster solidarity um, in these circumstances and even outside of these circumstances anyway um we Could I just jump in and say one quick thing before we yeah. move on um the other thing that I didn't we didn't really touch on um but I thought was important in especially in re reference sort of to fines in a way is debt um and you know I actually think I've been thinking about this a lot but I sort of think it may end up being one of the biggest sites of conflict at a national level 
uh, is, you know, because in the lead up to this crisis, we knew that personal debt, mortgage debt, credit card debt uh, was this sort of all pervasive force on working class people and really starting to tie them down. Debt now, I think it had almost reached 200% of annual income. And uh, there is nothing right now occurring in the crisis that does anything to address that. If anything right now, people are accruing rental debt, they're accruing more mortgage debt, they're probably taking on more debt to deal with their drops in income and the insecurity that comes with these uh, serious bits of employment. And it will be a um, it will be a weight around the necks of the vast majority of working class people when we come out of this crisis. And it will be a tool used to discipline people and force them back to work in unfavorable conditions unless we somehow address it. I think actually at a federal level for me, the major demand increasingly has to be if big corporations are having debt underwritten or their corporations are being underwritten, then there has to be a massive debt forgiveness program, both in student debt, mortgage debt and credit card debt coming out of this um, I think it almost has to be one of the demands because actually the institutions that will come out of this probably the least, the most unscathed will be banks and credit card institutions, uh, and those are the ones should that be forced should be forced to um, take the hit. Okay, well, on that note, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I think that's a really good um, rundown and a good note to end on. Um, but I think yeah, there's there's one thing that's been playing on all of our minds that maybe hasn't been talked about a lot in the in the rest of the media, which is how how does this impact electoral politics campaigning? Um, as you know, many of you many of our listeners would know, we're we're all involved quite heavily in campaigning uh, for the Greens, and it throws a bit of a spanner in the in the works, uh, not being able to go out door knocking. You might have listened to a previous podcast where we um, kind of extolled the virtues of door knocking. Um, as a transformative method in many ways, but now it's, um, I don't know if it actually is illegal, but you know, it may as well be, uh, we, we have to pivot. So we want to talk a little bit, um, maybe for the next, I don't know, 20 or 30 minutes, um, about alternative models of campaigning, um, that don't involve talking to people face to face. So I think phone banking was kind of our first um, stop as the next best thing to door knocking, um, but it is quite a different method. Uh, so I want to open Eva. You're kind of an expert on it, so I kind of just want to open the uh, open the floor to you for a while, Eva. Go for it. <laughs> don't know. Don't know about expert. Um, but yeah, I guess like when we're looking at all the different options for like this is not just electoral organizing, like. There will be left-wing organizations and activists like all over the country being like, oh, like we can't have like rallies. We can't really go march. Um, there's no face-to-face community organizing. And yeah, like in our context, no door knocking. Um, so I guess like when you look around the world to other big campaigns like, you know, Bernie Sanders, Corbyn, um, the other thing they do on a really, really big scale is phone banking. Um, and I figure like, can't go wrong, like combining the two things that Queenslanders really love, politics and telemarketing, like can't go <laughs> wrong strategy. there. Um, but yeah, like in, <laughs> yeah, but in actuality, like, yeah, there's, there's a lot of differences, um, with door knocking and phone banking and yeah, I mean, I, it does harken back a little bit to, um, I think we did, uh, talk a little bit about. Uh, with the UK election, our experiences, um, phone banking for Corbyn as well, and actually found that to be like 
really, really meaningful. Um, and I had a really similar experience uh, for Jonathan Tree's campaign as well. Um, I do have like a bit of a funny story to share, but maybe I'll open it up and um, get other people's thoughts a little bit before I start raving on about this. It's a bit of my my campaign nerdiness comes out on this topic, but I'll um, I <laughs> someone think else for go me, first. like I was someone who um, I think I said to you when you first launched the phone banking operation, Eva, like I really hate phone banking. I don't want to do it. Uh, and I successfully avoided all of your attempts to make me go phone banking um, until the last few weeks of the campaign when it became clear that we just couldn't draw knock. So I started doing some from home. Um, I didn't have anything particularly profound, but just for like people who've never who were in the same boat as me, who didn't want to do it or thought it wasn't their style. Um, even, you know, I'm a very experienced door knocker, so it's not that I didn't want to talk to strangers. It was just something about the medium that um, didn't appeal to me. But I found it so much better than I thought it was going to be. Um, and in a way, uh, the lack of face-to-face -face interaction makes it easier. Like when people reject you or say something mean to you or just hang up the phone, it's way less hurtful than it is in person. And I feel like in a way sometimes um, when I go out door knocking, you have to put on a sort of uh, a different persona, like this persona of the campaigner. Uh, and you have to kind of leave your other self behind. Whereas if you're phone banking, especially from home, as I was, you can kind of retain a little bit of your own self there. I don't know, it's hard to explain, but you just feel a bit more, well, you're literally at home. So it is in a way a lot more comfortable and it's, it felt like I was putting less of myself out there, um, you know, in terms of like both the rejection and just in general, how I interacted with people. Um, so it's actually, I would say like a, a less intense experience than door knocking. That's my experience anyway. Um, I guess like comparing it to door knocking as well, like in some ways, like, yeah, it does, really suck like you said that like door knocking is essentially illegal at the moment um as far as we know so um but yeah in terms of like logistical differences there definitely are a lot but i think one of the more like subtle differences is that when you are like engaging and talking to people at the door what i find is that at least on some level like people do really respect like the fact that you've physically gone to the effort to walk up and knock on their door I don't know if anyone else, like, if you've ever canvassed or door knocked or anyone, um, like, speak up if you can kind of relate to what I mean, but it's almost like, I don't know, like, people appreciate that you've physically gone to that effort, walked up, knocked on their door to find out what their opinion is on the ideas that we want to share with them. And it almost, like, I don't know, it invokes, like, some, like, thing, like, some civic society vibe where people are like, oh, like, this person is actually engaging with me on an honest level. Um, and even in those instances where, like, you'll know this if you've door knocked, like, someone slowly trying to politely shut the door on you, they still feel kind of guilty about it because they recognize, like, the genuine effort that it took you to get that far. So on one hand, door knocking, like, yeah, like, it does really put a human face to that thing that we call politics and kind of makes it tangible um and phone banking is pretty different like you don't have that same physical presence so yeah like i guess you kind of have to work a bit harder to kind of earn the conversation is that how other folks yeah, I think that's pretty that much well. exactly like I think that's the flip side to what I was just saying. Like, you know, for the campaigner, it may be actually a slightly easier experience because you're not putting so much of yourself out there. But for the person you're campaigning to, 
it's the same, you know, they, it's less of a, um, impactful encounter maybe, or you have to work harder to make it impactful. Uh, and I think you're totally right, Eva, about that kind of embodied nature of door knocking being quite important and where people can see like, oh shit, this person is like literally out on the streets. And also when they're telling you about something, you know, often they'll you know, literally, you know, be pointing and you'll be like, oh, that, you know, that um, speed bump over there, that's way too high or whatever. So, yeah, I think it is, it throws up definitely its own challenges in terms of how to get that relational thing going over the phone. Yeah, it's a bit tricky too, because like, in my experience, like the most genuine and meaningful political conversations you can have with strangers are, they're like built upon, this is what I was thinking about today, like, they're kind of built upon this mutual understanding of like honesty. Like if you're, if you're doing it right and you're engaging with people in a genuine way, it's like you're frank and honest with each other. But yeah, like I feel like with, with calling, like because we live under like capitalism, the most common experience people have of being called by a stranger out of the blue is kind of one of like dishonesty, like either someone attempting to sell you something you don't want, or like scamming. So it's kind of like no wonder people have a bit more of an aversion to receiving phone calls from strangers like out of the blue. Like I was kind of, yeah, thinking about this today. Like why is it that people are so averse to the idea of getting a call from a stranger? And I think maybe that's it. Like what do you all think of that? Yeah, I mean, I think like it's a cliche, but it's also true that like a large percentage of human communication is nonverbal. like there's small social cues that you use, there's facial expressions. And also I just think because people are social beings, uh, humans are social beings, they, there's, there's like almost like, um, there's these sort of like unknown, but very real once you do door knock or any, you know, any sort of social interaction. I'm sure people are feeling this now that there's something missing when you have a Zoom party or like, um, or like a Zoom call with um, loved ones or um, friends, etc. It doesn't make up for not being in the room. Like it doesn't make up for not being in the room together. And I think similarly with political conversations, um, that like phone making will never be able to make up for that. Um, and that's true either around um, around dishonesty. Although it's something that we've certainly encountered for years. Door knocking is that the first barrier you have to get past is to assure people that you're not there to sell something. And then all of a sudden their faces relax, relax. Um, And that's, and you know, and that happens a lot, you know, I would say that in certain parts of South Brisbane, people get door knocked by the greens way more often than they, than they get tell um, salespeople coming to their doors. But no, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. But certainly when we were door knocking in the Griffith campaign, like out at Karina Heights, where like, um, fucking vulture uh, electricity companies seem to come out every week. And I remember chatting to someone about how like anxious it made them. Um, and I think this is why you saw the proliferation actually, because there was a lot of scammers going door to door selling dodgy shit to old people. Um, and so, you know, it, I think what happens, I actually think the suspicion is very similar to doors and um, phones because people are equally alienated, I think. Um, you know, there's not many large civil society organisations either way. Um, but it's just harder to do, a little bit harder to do over the phone because you can't make people feel at ease just by demonstrating that you're someone who's trustworthy and not trying to lie or trick them. Um, having said that, for those who do, you know, thinking about getting involved, um, 
as Joe said, there's it's slightly lower stakes, and you can also have incredible on phone like phone conversations. And I think actually in this instance, as people are more lonely and isolated, um, and a little bit scared or just fucking bored shitless, they'll be really open and surprised to just have a conversation with someone who wants to talk about politics more broadly, how they're going, whether or not you know they're getting involved in mutual aid stuff, what they think of the crisis, and um, and what uh, what what can be done about it. Yeah, absolutely. Like, um, I was just going to say, like, with that aversion to receiving phone calls that I think, like, you know, some people have because of capitalism, basically, um, it's not like an inevitability. Like, in the kind of society that we want to build, like, ideally, there's no reason why people wouldn't want to, like, potentially, like, look forward to getting called on the phone by a stranger or, like, a neighbour even, like, to talk about, I don't know, like, electoral politics or just, like, why they should join their union or how they can get involved in a community project or literally just to chat. Like I was kind of like thinking about this on like more of a broad, like philosophical society level. Like it's kind of weird that we all just like inherently shudder at the thought of like getting a phone call from like an unknown number. Like that strikes terror into people's hearts. But like in a future society, like people will have more free time to just kind of be social in general and like debate ideas and like talking on the phone will probably be one of those ways so yeah it's like interesting to think about yeah how people actually respond to like the idea of getting a phone call and in terms of like yeah how meaningful it can actually be maybe i'll share one of the like best stories that came out of that campaign yeah please do um i'll share this on behalf of friend of the show liam um who is like a massive bernie bro um and did some phone banking for the greens um so uh so a friend of the show liam called this 70 year old woman in kangaroo point so kangaroo point is a suburb in brisbane that traditionally has like a high liberal vote um so not great start like but outside of typical greens voting demographics um, and for the purposes of this story, I'll just call her Jan. And against all odds, Bernie Bro Liam um, <laughs> ends up on a call, on this call, and Jan independently brings up that she's a Bernie Sanders fan. And not only that, considers herself not a green green, but a Bernie Hell yeah, Sanders Jan. <laughs> green, Does she listen to podcasts? She should. <laughs> and I hope so. Uh, she didn't know Jonathan Shree was the local councillor or that he was in the Greens at all, um, but said she would probably vote for him after the chat. Also, like other hot takes from Jan, property developers have too much influence was the one thing that I recall from that conversation. And also she just like wanted trees everywhere, just all throughout the inner city, just like, palm trees and bougainvilliers specifically was like her big thing um and i think that was probably one of my favorite com- like conversations to have overheard just like for how odd and like unlikely and amazing it was so yeah sharing that on behalf of liam go liam go jan <laughs> um does anyone else have anything they want to add amy did you um have any yeah yeah i just wanted to say um Like in the last few weeks of the campaign, when it became clear that we weren't going to be able to go door knocking, I think there was a lot of um, heartache and grief that a lot of us felt, um, particularly because 
we are all invested in a campaign structure that's predicated on the idea that one-on-one -on -one conversations is what makes change. When we get to connect with people, when we ask people what's important to them, what's happening in their lives, and give people an opportunity to contextualise what they're experiencing um, in their homes um, and in their neighbourhoods into a bigger picture, um, which is often what we're trying to do when we go to the door and have those conversations. Um, like if we can't go and meet people at the doors, we just have to do everything we can um, to talk talk to people. And I think um, the Greens over the last few years have become a party that are committed to trying to connect with people outside of, um, you know, outside of circles that are already consuming um, Greens content, um, are already listening to floodcasts, like how are we going to connect with people outside of that? Um, and in this current moment that we find ourselves in, where we're at home, um, we're knocking on a stranger's door, um, is if not illegal, quite taboo in some ways. We've just got to find every other pathway we can to connect with people. And phone banking is right up there at the top of the list as something that's going to be um, super effective. And from Eva's example, like you can have these beautiful conversations with people, um, even people like that who, are, you know, are would be Greens voters but haven't had a chance to have a conversation um, with a Greens volunteer yet. Um, and then beyond that thinking like how are we going to be creative with um, digital online stuff? How can we have some interesting online forums? How can we make sure we're drawing people in? Like usually we rely on um, you know, big parties and events to make people feel part of the movement. And how are we going to do that when we can't actually all physically be together? How are we going to keep this going um, until we get an opportunity to finally see each other again and we'll have like the biggest party? It will be seen from space. <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, no, I honestly, I don't know. That's like a big That's open it. question for me is how to uh, preserve the culture of a campaign um, when you can't be face to face. There's a lot of stuff there about digital organising and digital campaigning as well. Um, Nicole, friend of the show, oh, Nicole, um, I would like to hear her takes on that because she's very involved in that sort of stuff. So, um, you know, feel free to jump in, but I think we'll we'll probably go into that later in a in a different episode um, when Nicole has a chance to join. But yeah, I think you know that's something I'm personally grieving a little bit. Amy is the sense of like the lack of a campaign culture like after the yeah I think we'll go into the to the council election results next but after those results came through for the GAB award um, and Jono was returned with extremely impressive swing uh, there was like yeah no nowhere really to go and like celebrate that everyone was kind of staying home there was a very small gathering at the um, of a few of us but it's yeah, it's not the same. So I think that's something we're all grappling with. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting tension, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you know, we um, uh, like I think all of us here, uh, you know, don't want to spend too much time despairing or being upset and being like, no, let's have a plan. Like we can do all of these amazing online organizing things, online forums, um, you know, chances for people to share about what how those sort of political demands that we're making would affect or change their lives. Um, tapping into what is already the largest online community in the world, which is gamers. Um, and I know Eva's said some stuff about that. And um, <laughs> also, nice. interestingly, yeah, that's right. But also, actually, the first time I heard it was talking to someone in the UK over Zoom who was like, 
it was just as the COVID crisis was kicking off. Uh, and he said to me, gamers. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, he was like, well, you know, there's a group much better organized than the left, like raises far more money, um, has a much more thriving online community than anything in the left has currently. And it's like Twitch streamers. Um, <laughs> and I was like, God, man, that's brutal. But like <laughs> weeks later, um, that has really um, hit home. And I think we'll be able to do some cool stuff, but I think it, we shouldn't, we, uh, there should also be some space for like anger and fury around, and I think this goes back to a point I made at the start of the social violence being imposed on society at the moment by a state that has fucked up royally, uh, you know, and also by a ruling class that's fucked up. Maybe not hasn't fucked up because I suppose in the end they'll be fine fuckers, most of them. Um, but in the sense that they've created a state and a world, you know, even before mentioned just-in-time production, but neoliberalized manufacturing where the vast majority of the world's manufacturing workshops are based in China or Bangladesh now or a few other places um, in the developing world or third world, what, pick your term, uh, and, you know, undercut social services, um, hospital services that run, that are designed to run at 80 or 95% capacity. You know, take your pick. Um, eviscerated social welfare systems. This all meant that the really the only way to effectively deal with this crisis is vicious social lockdown and the social violence that's imposed on people as a result. Um, and I think actually for me right now, the biggest motivating tool is the rage and fury. Um, not so much us, because I think like the, you know, our social groups will do it tough, but there's people who are going to, this is going to kill um, before the COVID crisis, before, before whatever COVID gets them. And for me, it's never again. Um, like before we get to any of the sort of like organizing tools or like the, um, or any of that sort of motivation, because I, I really do trust, um, you know, the organizers in our movement um, to be able to really build something big and special. But for me, the motivator comes down to never fucking again. Never like the next time a crisis like this comes around, it comes around at the very least, we've reminded the fuckers in charge that they should not have ever been allowed to cut our social welfare systems, our manufacturing base, our public capacity to respond to these crises in a way that treats people with respect and dignity and allows us to continue to maintain these social connections that give our lives meaning. Like, the price that we're paying for all of this is in ripping apart the things that most give our lives meaning, which are social connections. And, the, and we're made to pay the price for the greed and the disgusting, um, abhorrent way that, you know, in our particular political context, the large, you know, Labor and the LNP have run this country for decades now, and we are made to pay the price for it. And I think um, when we're organising, we're on the phones, when we're talking to people, uh, you know, it's anger, hope, action is the classic. But for me, I'm really feeling that now, and I'm really in the anger stage. Um, but uh, I want to get them. I really want to go and fucking get them now um, and make them pay for the suffering that's going to ensue um, over the next um, next few years and remind them there's more of us uh, than there is of them. And we're finally going to make our numbers count. Uh, and uh, for me, that is what's getting me up <laughs> in the morning, even when realizing that um, we are going to take a hit in our organizing capacity. I think the hit we will take will be sub will be substituted for the fury and hope that we can build a better world that comes out of it.
I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next few weeks or months, because at the moment, being in the very early stages of the crisis, it seems to me that most people aren't feeling that rage so much. It's more just fear and the sense that, um, as we were kind of talking about before around the police response, you know, whatever uh, the state needs to do to keep everyone safe is okay. Or, you know, we're or even like a flattening out of um, of class differences and in interests and the sense that we're, we're all in this together um, or whatever, which I think is quite maybe easier to do in a pandemic like this because wealthy people can get the virus and, you know, people like Boris Johnson have got the virus. So it's maybe even a little bit harder to bring out those class dimensions of the crisis. But I think it'll be interesting, yeah, to see how that progresses as we kind of move past the initial panic stage and people start realizing like, oh, this incredibly draconian lockdown situation where I, you know, can't see my friends or family for months at a time is, um, is shit. It's like ruining my life. Uh, so yeah, I think I see our role definitely as giving, as channeling some of that rage. Well, you know, also bringing out that rage to begin with and making people realize, you know, this isn't an apolitical situation um, this isn't neutral, you know, th- this is a political crisis. Um, I think it's too early at, the, at this point for that to have really happened at a large scale, but interested to see how it progresses. Oh, um, okay, so I think we should move on to something more hopeful now. <laughs> let's end on a hopeful note. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the council elections, uh, which happened last weekend in Queensland. So um, all of us, uh, or most of us now live in the in the Gabba ward uh, with Jonathan Sri, the, the Greens councillor, the only Greens councillor in Queensland, um, who was returned with um, significant margins. <laughs> I'm just going to look up actually what his primary vote is. It's something insane. Uh, yeah, 45.4% of the vote right now on first preferences with 67% of the vote counted. The uh, Liberal candidate has 29.3% and the Labor candidate has 25.3%. So that's pretty significant for a number of reasons. Um, firstly, I guess for people who don't live in the Gab or follow it closely, Jonathan's been regarded as a very um, kind of <laughs> radical councillor. He's in the Korea Mail pretty much every week, um, be, you know, being accused of being a, a narco communist or whatever. Um, but and so it seems like uh, he is extremely popular in his ward, and you know, huge props to Jonah for being a really, really hardworking and effective local member, um, and someone who like I did a fair bit of door knocking for him, and a lot of people um, who you would not expect to ever be Greens voters love Jono. and I think that's you know largely down to the very hard work he's done over the last four years. So well done, Jono. Um, the other significant thing is that the Labor vote is just tanking so hard here. Um, so 25.3% on, in what used to be their heartland, basically, like one of their strongest council seats, if not the strongest. Um, on the West End booth, which, again, for local listeners will know, West End is kind of like the lefty epicentre of the Gab Award and a place where Labor used to do very well. They got 22% of the primary vote. So they are um, they're nowhere uh, which is, you know, great for us <laughs> um, and also bodes well for the state election later this year. Um, and there was a the Brisbane Times article said, the LNP's Nathaniel Jones, a police officer who did almost no public campaigning, appears to have beaten Miss Gallagher, the Labour candidate, so far in the primary vote. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of where they're at. Like, it's true, the LNP candidate did not campaign. 
the Labour candidate, you know, she actually did campaign quite hard and still ended up um, on a very low percentage. Yeah, um, it was a very strange election day, as many of you would know, and the lead up as well, as the crisis were unfolding and, and um you know, we were worried about people, were people going to go and vote? Were people scared to go and vote? Um, you know, we were encouraging people like get down to pre-poll and like do the phone vote as well. Um, and, you know, uh, kind of worried about what the result was going to be in the middle of a pandemic. Like what was this going to mean for politics in general? It seemed for a moment like, um, you know, anything was possible. And what ended up happening, the most, you know, incredible result, um, this incredible swing to the Greens that has now, Jono got a swing when he got in and a swing now and this, the swing is on in this area um, and really a testament to, yeah, I mean, Joe, you've mentioned the hard work that Jono does, but also a testament to this transformative radical politics that we've been talking about for a number of years now. Um, and tapping into this anti-political sentiment as well, like Jono is really um, capturing the mood as the, the perfect anti-political representative um, who, you know, he doesn't care how he dresses and he, he says what's on his mind and people really who you wouldn't expect would support him, people admire him for that. Um, and I think in this moment when people... Sorry, I was just going to jump in um, with the Donald King story that um, pretty much summed that up perfectly, where I Donald someone also in Kangaroo Point, actually, so a high LNP vote area, um, just this like, yeah, mid-40s guy, and he was like, yeah, Jono, oh, yeah, you know, I don't agree with everything he says, but the Courier Mail hates him and that's good enough for me. <laughs> so I think that exactly. sums up a lot of his support. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Look, really, if you're pissing, if you're pissing off the Courier Mail, then you know you're, you're doing something right. Yeah. I remember early on, actually, in the Gabba Ward campaign, um, it was like a door knock um, last year, actually, now, and talking to this um, old pensioner uh, in, I don't think it was social housing, um, somewhere um, around East Brisbane, uh, and he, like, the conversation started with, like, yeah, I don't mind Pauline. Like, you know, that's who I sort of support. And I was like, oh, okay. And uh, you thought about who you're supporting at a council level. And he was like, oh, I like that, Jonathan. You know, he um, uh, he says what he's thinking. You know, he doesn't, doesn't pay attention to the political rules. And, like, he gets up to all sorts of strife in the Curia Mail, um, which really, like, uh, there was some... Um, uh, some of the Labour Party said to me, he's like, you guys... Um, uh, I, he was like, we sort of get the sense that Curamel helps Jono. And we're like, absolutely. Like, uh, I, I actually think it's almost like a symbiotic relationship in some way. Like, the, the Curamel, like, the, the Curamel has provided um, an incredible amount of anti-political cred um, to Jono. And yeah, Amy, in, in addition to the, uh, you know, Jono's incredible work and the politics is articulated and the radical politics more generally that's been articulated out of the Queensland Greens over the last three or four years. Because the other thing we saw was like a 5% swing to the Greens across the city and the Lord Mayor vote and massive swings in lots of all sorts of places, you know, Walter Taylor, Paddington, um, all the way out in Holland Park, where there was not really a camp, you know, there was a great local candidate but not necessarily a massive campaign. Um, and it's just a, also just a testament to 
you know, the organizational capacity that has grown in this movement over the last three or four years where multiple large field campaigns now can run at the same time, which in 2016, there was one campaign in the GAB award. And now there was four or five massive campaigns all getting double digit swings. Uh, and at that rate of growth, like it's really actually quite exciting to think about what will lead into the state election in terms of our capacity, even if it has to switch to phone banking, our capacity uh, to reach to, and talk to ordinary people about the lives and the issues that they affect them and our poli political offer in response to that uh, and our ability to shift people. And it's clear that um, actually Anthony Green on um, ABC Radio was like, look, the two, he was like, the two-party preferred result actually does, is sort of meaningless. The real story is the Greens. Um, and I never would have thought I'd hear Anthony Green say something like that post an election when the LNP had just been returned. Um, so that gives me a lot of hope, actually. Like, and you always forget that we all started this like in 2016, which is actually not that many years ago. <laughs> and we've gone from like, um, we've gone from this little thing where we're hoping and praying. And now we're actually like, you know, that we win one seat. Now we're actually disappointed we didn't win two or three or four. Uh, and, you know, going into a state election where we really will start to think about winning seven or nine seats. Uh, and um, I don't know, it's like, it's very cool. And I think the other thing is um, for some some people more broadly in, uh, you know, in the Greens, but also in just more broadly in politics who think that you have to be sort of a small target and you can't go too far to win votes. When we know when we door knock that people are at once more left wing and more right wing than any of the left, um, you know, wildly contradictory politics. But um, it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's such, the proof is so in the pudding now in these results and in the results of the last few years that a bold transformational radical politics can build a coalition of unlikely voters, whether they be ex-One Nation voters, ex-Labor or ex-LNP. Um, and we're on the right path. Yeah, um, I'll just echo everything Max said there. And like, it was a totally weird um, last week of an election campaign. But um, the thing that I felt super, super hopeful about after seeing those results come in um, from the election on the weekend was like, Queensland's most politically radical local councillor, right, you could say that, is also like undoubtedly now one of the most popular local councillors in the whole country, right? Like, that's massive. So, yeah, that just fills me with a lot of hope. Yeah, definitely, Eva. Um, I think, like, yeah, like, I just kind of keep going back to what I said before when you um, door knock for Jono and, like, you know, the results, they do speak for themselves, but he has um, a ton of support across people with people who never would have considered themselves Greens voters. And um, I think, you know, now they've realised what a huge change it is to have a Greens local representative. Obviously, those votes are staying. Um and talking about kind of like sticky greens votes, I think we can see the benefit of the big campaigns that um, our sort of crew have, have run over the past few years in the surrounding areas, um, particularly the Griffith campaign. So the the electorate of Griffith takes in Cooparoo, um, the local um, ward of Cooparoo, where we also saw a gigantic swing to the greens. I'm just going to look up what it actually was. Um, a nine. Currently, Sally Dillon, the Greens candidate, is sitting on a 9.6% swing from last time. Like that's huge. Um, and yeah, wow, she is actually only about a hundred votes behind the Labor candidate. Wow, um, go Sally! Amazing. So, I think yeah, those votes are quite sticky. Like at least some of that big result can be brought down to the fact that we campaigned in Cooparoo very hard in the Griffith um, when we were campaigning in Griffith. So. 
I think, yeah, it helps, especially for, for folks who might have been like disappointed that we didn't win Griffith um, or we didn't win South Brisbane in 2017. Like just taking the bigger picture, um, look at things and seeing how, you know, those votes do keep coming back. People that you talk to about the Greens that you convince are very likely to vote Greens again. Um, and it all helps. And yeah, I think coming into state election uh, late, later this year, hopefully, if they don't uh, fucking postpone it, um, that is, yeah, incredibly encouraging. And thank you to everyone who did campaign, especially um, I want to shout out Justin, um, a podcast listener and someone who helped a lot in the last few weeks of Jono's campaign under circumstances that were probably really different to what we thought were gonna, was going to happen. So thank you very much, Justin, um, and everyone else who, who did help out. Yeah, uh, the other interesting thing is to reflect on how this these results are situated within the broader political context in Queensland. After the federal election, there was a lot of commentary that was saying that, you know, Queensland had made this conservative shift to the right, when in reality what we were seeing was the major parties just hemorrhaging votes um, to minor parties um, up and down the state. And um, this is in the context of Queenslanders being um, some of the most frustrated with the political system um, in the country, um, least trusting in politicians um, across across the country as well, um, which tells you a lot about what's actually going on in Queensland. And yeah, the fact that in Brisbane, the, the capital, we were able to get these incredible results right across the city. Um, and also um, some seats that were really close on the Sunshine Coast uh, is really like a testament to the hard work that we've been doing. But the fact that um, the message uh, and the ideas and the initiatives that we've been putting out there are really resonating with Queenslanders who are more frustrated than anyone else in the country. Um, you know, facing some um, really dire economic conditions in um, in some of our rural centres as well. Um, and we know when when we have these organised campaigns, when we're able to go and talk to people, um, these messages are resonating with people and they're responding um, with these incredible swings. Yeah, and I thought I'd, uh, like, I, I think the other thing to really, like, reflect on is um, I think we can all get caught up sometimes uh, just in the sort of, like, cut and thrust of electoral politics in the sense that, like, oh, these are amazing swings or we've won these candidates. Um Etc. And you know me more than most. But what's really also really useful to reflect on is like what this strategy is, uh, and we talk about it a bit. But um, I think why we're all excited is because we've you know our strategy is that one way to build power in society and in politics uh, is to a build the you know political organisations and. Uh, and like volunteer org uh, organizations that are capable of organizing and breaking down, organizing ordinary people and breaking down the social isolation that prevents people from organizing or imposing themselves on politics in a powerful way. Um, but also when we win MPs, it does two things. It gives us a voice in parliament and a capacity to wield power in parliament, which at this point is somewhat obviously limited. But I think almost more importantly is every MP we get is one like one of the most well-resourced and brilliant social community organisers that we can get. And our strategy is that the, the, the you know, we've talked, there's been a lot of talk about logarithmic graphs and exponential growth recently in a more bleak way. But I think what Jono and Michael Berkman uh, has proved and Larissa Waters is, but especially in lower house seats, when we win these seats, 
the social organization, the capacity more broadly of the left uh, explodes in a really positive way. Uh, and um, the path we're, that we're on right now is that we, the more representatives we win, the bigger our organization is capable of shifting people's politics and capturing what Amy correctly identified as this deep anti-political feeling in Queensland and turning it into this massive force for social and progressive politics. I think we'll, like, there'll be a tipping point at some point where the changes that we'll be able to win will be really fast and exciting. Uh, and, you know, beyond this COVID crisis, because there will be a beyond this COVID crisis. I think this is just a council election is the cherry on top of a cake of a strategic cake that shows that this is really working. Uh, and the wins community organizing that John has been able to do in over the last four years has been really impressive. Uh, and it's this one-two punch where we build during in the um, come up to elections, we really engage in door knocking and phone banking and this, these massive political organizations. And the second punch is when we get those political representatives elected, they then have the capacity to go and do this brilliant community organizing and build pa social power. Uh, and I think it's sort of a unique strategy in some ways, but God, yeah, it's just really getting me, um, really getting me uh, uh, excited actually about um, what we'll be able to win going forward. And Amy mentioned this, uh, this is the last thing I'll say, Amy mentioned, um, you know, what we'd be able to do if we door knocked in places outside, once we get the capacity and build the capacity to door knock in places outside of where we usually campaign. Uh, and I fundamentally believe it the case that if we are capable of organizing, like once we build the broader capacity to run massive field campaigns in places like Logan and Ipswich and Inala and, you know, um, all the way up into rural Queensland, we'll get swings that are um, we'll get swings that are even bigger than um, swings that are even bigger than the ones that we get in the inner city because it's that there where you know the politics of massive wealth redistribution and anti-politics is really going to cut through um, and that's when the, I think once we're able to do that the tipping point will come very quickly. Hell yeah um, okay I just want to end my last thing um, before we wrap up um, I'll pass on to Joe to wrap up but I just want to end on this quote from my organizing bible uh, Rules for Revolutionaries uh, by Becky Bond and Zach Exley. So this is a quote. Um, it will be hard to dispel the myth that spending big money on advertising is the path to electoral, vi electoral victory. Uh, but we do know that if people organize, we can go up against big money and win. And I think the results from the weekend show that. That's a great note to end on. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Uh, we'll try and do another now we've got the hang of our remote um, floodcasting. We'll try and do another one soon. Um, I think, yeah, there's a lot a lot that's happening at the moment. Um, one of the reasons we haven't yeah, um, done a, a, a super rapid podcast response is that everything's changing very much. So I think the next time we record, probably have even more to talk about. But yeah, I think that's pretty much it, unless anyone wants to add any final thoughts. No? Oh, Max? Oh, no, nothing. I was just going to be like, see you next time, everyone. It was nice. Uh, it was actually quite nice to get back to talking about politics again and not just having um, your head stuck in the day-to-day -day minutia of world, um, world COVID politics. So it was nice to speak to you all. Agreed. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. See ya. Bye.